Well, hello and welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast. We are closing out the month of February. And if you've been following this podcast for the month of February, we've been listening to stories from LGBTQIA individuals and family members of those individuals. And uh, some of those stories have been hopeful and joyful while others have been heartbreaking and difficult and raw and emotional. And I wanna just thank you for journeying here on the Beyond Boundaries podcast with me, Justin Douglas, over the last uh, month on this subject. Today's gonna be a little different. Today, I do not have a guest. Today, I am going to share with you why I am side A. But before I do that, I want to say, if this is the only thing you've listened to this month uh, in the podcast, I'd really encourage you to go back three episodes and listen to the stories that are leading up to this. Uh, The context of that and understanding those individuals' experiences uh, can give you a, a little bit of a helpful platform for what I'm going to be sharing today. But ultimately, what I'm going to be sharing with you today is my story, my experience, and why I am side A. So here we go. Um, Before we go any further, you might be asking, well, Justin, what is side A? Um, Well, there's what's called side A and side B um, within the LGBTQIA faith uh, community, theological community. These are terms that uh, just sometimes helpfully uh, show like where people are. And so side A generally refers to those whom same-sex sexual activity is embraced within their theology. Uh, Side B generally refers to those whom same-sex sexual activity is not permissible within their theology. Now, obviously, um, there's a spectrum in side A and there's a spectrum in side B. Uh, I'm not going to get super into that today, uh, but ultimately, um, there was a time period where I considered myself side B uh, and then there was a time period where I simply said, I don't know if I'm side A or side B. And that time period has lasted quite some time, actually. And coming into this year of 2019, um, I, I've sensed the shift uh, and, and I feel like I'm comfortable saying I am side A. And I want to kind of take you through a little bit of my process on that, why I feel that way, and even why I, I, I desire to make this podcast episode and have desired to share the stories I've shared of recent. For me, podcasts like this were super helpful in learning and understanding and growing and listening to people's experiences and hearing even how other pastors were processing this. If you're listening to this and you're a pastor and you're processing this, I hope this can be helpful for you. Maybe you're not where I am. You're on a journey. Maybe you're not even going to find yourself inside A, but, but maybe there's something in here that resonates with you and that connects with you and that allows you to be more loving and gracious. Uh, Maybe you're here in your side A and you're like, Justin, why did it take so long for you to come to side A? Um, And I would just say uh, for everyone listening to this, uh, I hope you would give me a little bit of grace, but also at the same time, uh, it's my desire to be pushing and inspiring people toward love and justice. And um, so I think to start, it's probably important for you to know that I was raised in fairly conservative faith communities, especially around the topic of sexuality. Uh, I loved my upbringing. I I really appreciated it. Uh, I was homeschooled, which gave me a certain, um, in some ways, uh, social insulation from some things. Uh, Did not have gay friends growing up, or at least that I was aware of. Um, Was not exposed much to that. 
at the same time, my upbringing provided me the opportunity to get all my schoolwork done in two hours, which is what I literally did. I would wake up early in the morning and get my schoolwork done in like two or three hours and then play guitar and basketball the rest of the day. My friends would get out of school and we would play basketball for like two hours before I would uh, come home for dinner. Like I, I remember very fondly those days I grew up on a farm. Uh, I was very connected to my friends, loved them dearly. And, um, and it was a good time. Like growing up, I, I had... Uh, a love for my faith community, I would say too. Uh, church was a big part of my life growing up. And so much of what the church taught me in how to love people and how to care for people uh, still is with me today. Uh, there's times where I'm in a hospital room with someone who's maybe on their deathbed uh, and I'm there with the family and all of a sudden a passage pops in my head that I can't even reference where it's from, uh, but I know it's there. And, uh, and I'll, I just sense it's the spirit reminding me of this, this knowledge that I have that much of it was placed in my brain at a young age. Um, and uh, it, it's something that in those moments uh, I'm able to provide uh, comfort. And, and there's so many other ways I've benefited from my upbringing. Um, now there are things like many of us that I've had to deconstruct, uh, things that I've had to go back to and say, huh, I wonder if maybe my faith community was mis misguided on this or, or, or didn't, didn't have this experience with this group of people and therefore maybe, maybe didn't get an opportunity to see the full picture of how the gospel might connect to this. So on issues, uh, especially social issues, particularly around racism, uh, I had a lot of unlearning to do that I would say my faith community uh, either actively or passively handed me. Um, and as I look over the past 10 years, especially, I would say I've had a lot to learn about sexuality and still learn today, even about sexuality that my faith community handed me that I, I maybe have to reconsider approaches to, um, I think we're beginning a conversation in the church right now about purity culture and what that's done, um, to many generations of young people, um, with, uh, leaving people ashamed about their uh, sexuality. And I'm not even talking about their sexuality in relation to um, same-sex attraction. I'm saying just sexuality in general, being ashamed about it, even when maybe they do get married, uh, feeling a sense of dirtiness about sex instead of a sense of um, goodness and holiness and, and just uh, a sense of beauty about that part of their humanity. They feel a sense of shame. And so uh, that's something I know personally I've, I've had to work through in a lot of ways. Uh, and I would say that was handed to me by purity culture. I think, you know, one of the concerns I have as we have that conversation is like hookup culture is probably just as damaging, if not more. Um, so where do we go? I think we're, we're beginning to have an interesting dialogue about that. Uh, and, and I want to continue to explore that. So I guess what I would say is, my upbringing served me really well in a lot of ways, and it also gave me some deficits in other ways. And I, I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you probably can think about your upbringing and, um, and some of the ways it served you maybe well or didn't. And maybe you feel a little bit like me that there were some things that if you really honestly look at it, it was helpful. And then there were some things that gave you some deficits. One of the things that was a reality for me growing up, my friends and I would regularly call each other gay or fag. This was uh, a reality in my world. Um, I don't think I ever was thinking of a gay person though when I would say those things. It just became the language that 
my friends and I used. I, I wasn't aware of how my slang uh, might actually condition me in the way I think toward gay people. I wasn't even considering that. And I'm talking like as young as probably 12, 13, I started using this language. We even played a game, a football game called Smear the Queer. These were socially acceptable things. Um, adults watched us do this and uh, did not call us out, like did not say, don't say that, don't do that. I, I, I don't necessarily remember an adult modeling that for us. I'm sure that existed, but uh, amongst my friends, um, calling each other gay regularly or calling something gay was was pretty uh, consistent language. I would even say bordering on daily use. Um, and so for us, uh, growing up, like we just would use that language. And I didn't recognize that consistently using that, and by the way, in a negative way, um, if something was gay, it was the negative. Um, uh, and so like uh, even some of the ways that that was conditioning me in a social way toward uh, a negative understanding and approach and ultimately a belittling approach, not an approach that opened me up to a whole lot of empathy or understanding for someone who, who might identify as LGBTQIA. And so I remember being 17 years old um, and uh, we got a new youth pastor. His name's Jason. Jason and I are still really good friends. Uh, Jason is actually, I would consider him my mentor. He was my youth pastor, but then also um, has, has stuck, stuck around and put up with me uh, even beyond that. And I remember one moment where we were um, at youth group early on in his time at, uh, at our church. And, uh, and me and a bunch of my friends were, were using the word gay. Um, and, uh, and I led worship. It's important for you to know. I also like, led worship in our youth praise band at times. I was, I was a youth leader, if you will, for middle schoolers, other things. I was always at the church. I, I would do anything I could to, to be a part of it. I was beginning to sense a call into pastoral ministry and and uh and I think Jason knew that and so he um he pulled me aside and uh for the first time ever I was confronted um and and asked to consider uh why I'm using the word gay <laughs> um I I was asked to consider how a gay person might receive that language and what's so interesting is I can remember my mental thought being, well, there's no one gay here. We're at youth group. We're at church. Gay people don't come to church. <laughs> like, I don't know that I verbalized that. I can't really remember in depth the conversation I had with my youth pastor at 17. But I remember thinking to myself, yeah, okay, maybe. But like, they're not here. Um, almost as if like that's something happening somewhere else. That's not... I've never, I've never known a gay person. I don't know any gay people. And then kind of the shocker that my youth pastor tells me that uh, there are maybe gay students here. Um, I think he might've even said there are gay students here. Um, and I just wasn't aware of that and that there might be gay students who come and visit for the first time. Maybe it's their first time here and hearing you say that can be incredibly hurtful. And it was really the first time I'd ever considered that that language was hurtful. And so I began to work on removing that from my language, which actually was really hard. Um, it was something that was just so 
so regular, so normal. Um, I continued to be in a relationship with friends who used it regularly, so that made it uh, interesting. But uh, you know, by the time I go to college, um, for the most part, it's it's you know somewhat out of my language, or at least uh, something that I'm I'm mindful of when I do say it. I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, but not really because of anything other than I respect my youth pastor. He told me I probably shouldn't be saying this. Uh, yeah, sure, maybe it could make someone feel some kind of way, but. I don't know any of those people and that's just not a thing that's really connected to my heart in any meaningful way. Like, and look, if you want to judge 17 year old Justin, I have all kinds of judgments for him too. Um, not the brightest, you know? Um, but at the same time, uh, I hadn't been exposed to so much of what I know now on this side, being 34 years old and, um, having so many of the relationships that I have today. So flash forward to college. Uh, I went to Liberty university uh, that probably tells you some of what you need to know there, depending upon if you know much about that institution. Um, I think it's fair for me to say this. I would say in some ways institutionally homophobic. Um, I remember a time where we had protesters on campus who were protesting over LGBT issues. And uh, we were told that trash cans had been strategically placed around these individuals so that when they handed us their literature, we could take it and throw it in the trash cans right in front of their face, um, which did not settle well with me, even as a sophomore in college. Like I was like, I think it was, I was either a freshman or sophomore. And I was like, really, that's what we're going to do? Okay. I don't, huh, I don't know what I think about that. Um, wouldn't it be better to enter into a loving and gracious conversation, even though like I knew I was right and they were wrong. I was very certain of that. Uh, Liberty, uh, some of the things that were consistently taught to me at Liberty within the theological department and within um, even the science department was um, that that uh, same-sex attraction is a choice. It's not biological. We're confident it's not. And don't let the liberal media tell you it's a choice or don't, don't let them tell you it's, it's uh, an orientation or something that's biologically kind of preset or determined. It is a choice and these people are making a choice. And, and again, I, I had very little exposure. So um, I, I would say I, I took liberty at, at, at what they said on that. Again, not really having much exposure or much relationship to, 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 to feel any differently than that. I would also say there was a, a communal homophobia, if you will, uh, a communal homophobia, what I mean by that is like our, our, our dorms would be, you know, uh, very homophobic, uh, a continuation of many of the relationships I, I might have had with my friends in, in high school, but probably heightened in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the language used uh, continued that I that I had in high school through, you know, my friend groups continued uh, a lot of that language. Um, I would also say. Uh, while at Liberty, I, I did meet gay students, which uh, for, for many of you might seem like an oxymoron, um, and uh, began to kind of get to know them, uh, but never really got in their life enough to ever ask um, what they thought about this. Like, to, to, I never really got in their life enough to know their journey intimately or well. They were more acquaintances maybe than friends. But I, I began to start noticing that gay people and lesbians existed in my, um, it, who were also part of the faith community. That's, I guess, the way of saying it. 
that LGBTQIA people existed that also loved Jesus or were desiring to love Jesus. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know how I would interpret it at that point. It might just be that um, there's people that go to this Christian institution that also are gay. Interesting. That that might have been kind of more how uh, 19 or 20 or 21 year old Justin would have um, thought about that. So I graduated Liberty and I became a youth pastor. In my time in youth ministry. Um, I, I began to interact with students over a variety of issues that were difficult social issues. Um, and some of what was handed to me in my theological upbringing as a child, but also in my um, theological education at Liberty, wasn't really helpful for some of the real world places where you meet students, some of the very human places that you meet people um, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of even their own brokenness, or even just the reality of, of what life has handed them. And as a youth pastor, I, I, I realized that I needed to be more flexible than my faith community had taught me to be. Um, but at the same time, I had a large desire to be theologically accurate um, and to not sacrifice truth in that process, but also to, to recognize that I was reaching people. And there's, there's a relational context to which the gospel connects and brings about freedom. Uh, but I wanted to ensure that certain people weren't left out of that because of the circumstance of their situation. And so I began to like look for relevant on-ramps for students to have faith conversations. And it, it was really great. I, I loved being youth pastor. Truthfully, uh, I've been a senior pastor now officially for three and a half years, and I was an interim uh, senior pastor for three and a half years. Um, so it's been oof, seven years now that I've been a lead pastor in some capacity. And uh, man, I miss youth ministry. Uh, it, was, it was great to relate to students. And I, I would have told you I probably uh, would retire a youth pastor and some opportunities presented themselves. And, and ultimately, God just opened doors and, and it led to um, the position I'm in now. But in being a youth pastor, one of the things... Um, I guess maybe just I can share one of the first dominoes that dropped was a student sitting in my office saying that uh, their friend had, had brought them to youth group um, because this person didn't really have anywhere else to go. Um, and they sat in my office. I remember it very vividly and said, I'm gay and started crying and then said, did God make a mistake? Um, and asked if they were going to hell. Um, and... I did not know what to do. Uh, everything I was taught to say in that moment didn't seem like the way Jesus would respond. And I just kept repeating that God loves you. I don't know about these things, but I know God loves you. And I know God has called our youth group to love you if this is something you need and if this is a community you want to be a part of. And so we created a space of, of love for that student. And uh, by the way, that's not the only student who's come out to me. And the other students who have come out to me have come out under similar circumstances with similar questions. And some of them who came out to me and 
uh, at the time didn't feel comfortable coming out to their parents or even their some of their best friends and um, and so even holding some of that in confidence and, and realizing the amount of shame around their sexuality that they would come out to me as a pastor almost as an act of confession um, but couldn't do that to the people they loved most and the people that loved them most for fear of how they might respond um, so I began to journey with these students, just like any other student I would journey with, but knowing something deeper and more intimate about them than I knew about many of the other students in our youth group. And it really forced me to consider a few things. Probably the biggest thing I had to consider was, is this a choice? Um, I was so conditioned to believe this was a choice and it wasn't biological. There's nothing happening in that way. This is just the sin nature presenting itself in this way. And um, wow, to call it an orientation is a great way of denying the sin that exists in this place. This was just the way I was taught. Um, as I journeyed with students who so desired to belong in their schools, with their peers, with their family, it became clear that this desire that was in them, some of them would even ask questions like, I wish I wasn't gay. Could God change me? Why did God make me this way? Those questions led me to consider a different perspective that maybe something biological is happening here. Maybe there is an orientation because especially for some of these students, they were going, I was a youth pastor uh, in Wisconsin <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I joke about one of the schools there that uh, a student I know went to who uh, was gay. And uh, I said, you know, of all the places you would, you would, uh, choose to be a gay student this would not be the place like a place where people are pulling up in their four by four trucks with confederate flags hanging off the back even though we're about as far north as you can get in the country as funny as that is but just gives you a little bit of the mindset of a, of a small rural school with some very conservative values as um their their upbringing uh, quite honestly not that different from my upbringing um and to be thrust into that environment as a high schooler, but then also a gay high schooler and having to process those relationships, but you desire to belong, you desire to be normal, I guess would be the way of saying it. That's, that's, uh, that's a phrase I heard over and over again, the, the idea of what was normal and a desire to be normal, to blend in, to not um, experience the judgment and... Um, you know, uh, outcasting, if you will, or othering associated to your sexuality. And it's like, if this was just a choice, it would seem to me that it would be easy for the student just to not make that choice. Um, but it became clear that like, there's a, there's something else going on here. There's, um, an orientation and that set me on reconsidering much of what I had been told. Um, 
I can't go back to that date exactly because I do believe much of this was a process. I could even go back to when I was 17 years old and my youth pastor asked me to consider the way I use the word gay. Um, and I can go back to sitting in the Vine Center hearing about how we had strategically placed trash cans all over campus to throw away this literature and many, many, many other things I haven't even listed that were um, mile markers probably in my consciousness and subconsciousness that were moving me toward a more compassionate and empathetic understanding of this subject. Ultimately, though, um, when students began coming out to me, that's when I, I really, I guess I would say the ball really started getting rolling um, in that I was connected to their lives. These were people, these were relationships that were forming and not just like I know you and you're an acquaintance, kind of like I had a few people like that at Liberty, but these are like, I know you and I see you every Wednesday night and I go to your basketball games and I, I, I interact with your family or your friends or I live in the same community as you. Um, I began to encounter this subject in a more intimate way simply because the relationships uh, were connected to me in a different way than they had been previous. And so I think one thing I, I really want to encourage you, whether you're side A or side B, if you're side A, maybe the thing to, I would like to encourage you is to consider the reality that, that, that love is patient. And um, this is a process and many people haven't been exposed to um, the realities of uh, the gay community. And as they enter into relationships and as they're provided those opportunities or as they seek out those opportunities, um, there's, there's the possibility for movement, even in people that maybe are like, they're never going to move. This is where they're at. This is where they'll always be. Um, I would encourage you if you're on site A to consider that. And if you're on site B, I would encourage you to consider that those on site A have likely been wrestling with this for a long time. Uh, this isn't uh, a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, you may have heard about it and not heard the, the multi-year process that they've been on. But I know for myself, I can trace the beginning of this back to 17, but if I really wanna talk about like when I started diving into it, uh, for real, I would say somewhere around 24, and I'm 34 today or not today, but like now. Um, so like it's been 10 years plus that I've been uh, actively processing and discerning uh, my thoughts on this matter in relationship with individuals. And it took me that long. Uh, and again, for those on side A, you don't know to the extent that side B has been conditioned to be rooted in that side and all of the things that are considered along the way. One of the other realities that became clear through the process of, of me considering my thoughts on this um, was my children. I had three children uh, over that time period and uh, over the time period of processing this. So my, my children now, Magnolia is nine years old. It's my oldest daughter. My son Beckett is seven and my son Reed is four. And so as you can kind of piece together the timeline, 
very early on in my conversations with students. I'm having my first child, so I'm experiencing what it's like to be a father while I'm also having kids tell me that they can't talk to their father about this. Um, there's a connection there that uh, that's concerning as a father. Um, you know as a father your kids are going to keep things from you, um, but you hope that they won't keep the most meaningful and intimate and even painful things from you. You hope that you can have those conversations as a dad and that you can provide comfort and you can provide love in those moments. Love that probably nine years ago I would have struggled to if I had a daughter who was coming out to me. Um, but now as I've um, processed even mentally, like what would happen if one of my kids came out to me? How would that change our relationship? And while I recognize that could change aspects of our relationship more from the standpoint of just that reality. I also know it would not change in any way, shape or form my love for them or the way in which I express that love. And that's some, that's a conclusion I came to quite some time ago. Even as I said, I didn't know whether this was sin or not. Um, I came to that conclusion quite some time ago and that's been very important to me as a, as a parent to raise my kids truly with the idea of unconditional love um, and to embrace them no matter what. Coming to side A now, though, I would not just embrace them. I would uh, affirm uh, their same-sex attraction and I would um, encourage them toward um, expressions of that that are loving, monogamous, committed, and... Um, and that would be what I would do as a father in that moment. And so through this process, um, children and becoming a parent has been a huge part also in my understanding of God as our parent, as our shepherd, as our father. Um, this imagery, even, even as our mother, uh, the imagery that we get through the scriptures of God as our parent and as a shepherd uh, are things that, that I think I, I've grown to understand the loving nature of God, maybe in a different way than I had been handed as a child or in a different way than I had been handed in my faith community growing up. So um, my journey to where I am today, being 10 years, um, it, it's been rocky at times. It's been hard because there's a whole nother element of this that... <laughs> That's a, that's a real reality, and that's as a, as a pastor, there's pressure to um, hold your personal beliefs somewhat close to the chest, you know, close to the vest, if you will, like not, uh, not too sure how your particular faith community or the, uh, the denomination you're attached to are going to receive those particular views, and um, there can be a lot of pressure to remain in the conditioned response that you've had for most of your life. Um, and so that's been happening as well. And, uh, those are things, conversations that I've had to work through, um, throughout my career on a variety of subjects, but certainly this one has a huge impact in that way as well. I would say this to, 
those listening before I kind of move on to some scriptural reasons, because I do not want this to just be experiential. I want to kind of share some of the scriptures and how I processed them. But I just want to say it's my prayer that you'll consider seeking relationships with LGBT individuals, um, whether you're side A or side B, but especially if you're side B, um, and not relationships where you enter in with uh, a judgment over, but instead a listening posture. Um, That doesn't mean if you feel like you have certain beliefs, you have to suspend those beliefs or, you know, deny those beliefs. Those are your beliefs. They're your beliefs. And I, you need to be honest and true to what you believe, but not allowing your beliefs to inhibit you from hearing their stories, hearing their experiences. And I would even say this, maybe even witnessing their faith and their desire to follow Jesus. Hopefully you can find some LGBT individuals who are faithfully following Jesus, even as they're expressing their sexuality uh, in, a, in an expression of same-sex relationship. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, if you're on side B, to consider that. Um, the, the worst thing that can happen is you still believe what you believe, but you now have got to know someone else's experience. But I, I really hope they, and pray that you might uh, consider that. So one of the books that was really helpful for me, probably the, the book that I recommend the highest when you're considering books to read on the matter of LGBT theology is a book by Matthew Vines titled God and the Gay Christian. Um, I, I believe this was one of the first books that I had on this subject, although I had listened to multiple lectures on this probably before I had Matthew Vines book. I know, um, Another book similar to it is Justin Lee's book, Torn. I think Matthew Vine's book spoke a little more to me from the theological aspect and from his his conservative approach to scripture was really helpful. Um, I would say um, over the last 10 years, I've probably read somewhere toward 50 to 60 books and probably listened to hundreds of podcasts um, or lectures on this subject. I would guess, um, yeah, I think I could say this. I would guess there's no other subject that I've studied to the extent that I've studied this over the last 10 years. So that might give you an idea. I mean, I think racism, maybe, uh, it would be a close second. Um, some of, um, the, the many books I've, I've read on racism. I'm a huge fan of Martin Luther King Jr. And so I've read multiple of, of those books, which I would consider theological, um, But when I think of just some of the books that have been helpful at different points in my journey, uh, some of them wouldn't be affirming books, but they're still books that I found helpful as I processed. Um, People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. I would really encourage you if you're side B even to to read that. Um, It argues for the traditional um, uh, expression of um, sexual... um, theology, but it, uh, it, it does it, I think more graciously and lovingly than some of the other authors who are on side B. And so I found that book helpful, especially helpful for me when, when I wasn't, when I needed to be challenged in practice. Um, but I wasn't maybe ready to be challenged, um, further than I had already been challenged in my theology. 
Um, there's a great study uh, by um, Marin called uh, Us Versus Us. So that's a book that you could get, Us Versus Us. And that really just talks about how the uh, faith community really is, um, in, in a lot of ways, deeply connected to the LGBT community. Many people in the LGBT community um, grew up in church and would love to come back to church. And what uh, this study does is kind of talks about what that would look like. Um, a Bigger Table is a great book. Um, Building a Bridge by uh, James Martin is a, is a great book. Uh, Generous Spaciousness is a book that I, I really enjoyed, um, uh, talking about how we can create space for one another. Uh, I could go on and on with a variety of books, and maybe I'll put some in the show notes, but ultimately... Uh, my desire is that you maybe begin to consider how you can read a book that either challenges your belief or opens you up and exposes you to someone else's story in a way that might help you grow in understanding, empathy, and love toward LGBTQIA individuals. Now, on to the clobber passages, as they're called. Uh, there's also a book called Unclobber, I believe, that I read. <laughs> um, uh, but the clobber passages, um, I, I'm just going to go through some of the passages of Scripture that um, traditionally uh, would have been barriers, if you will, uh, for my uh, openness to the idea of even ever considering side A. So Genesis 1, God makes man and a woman. So like we can just start there, right? Let us make man and, our, man and woman in our image. Like this, this, this image that like God is creating uh, humanity in his image, but ultimately the, the design in, in the garden uh, is a man and a woman. Uh, initially, that was a huge barrier for me. Uh, I would say, though, one of the things I've come to, to notice about the garden story is that the Edenic ideal is not the ideal that Jesus necessarily is setting, nor is it the ideal of just what humanity is experiencing under the reality of sin and brokenness. And what I mean by that is an example here would be that in the garden, um, the humanity is, is, vegetarian. Here's, here's one example. Humanity is vegetarian, but then after the flood, God allows humanity, uh, blesses humanity even to, to, to kill his creation, to kill animals, um, to, to eat. And it seems as if God is almost relenting a little bit about, um, some of the bloodlust that exists within humanity post fall, uh, because it says before the flood that, uh, it was the most violent time, like, and it, it really references, uh, the heightened, violence that existed on the world. And so what I like to say is when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is the Edenic ideal. But the Edenic ideal is not what we're called to as we are full scripture readers. We are called to follow Jesus and the ideal that Jesus sets forth. And while Jesus references Eden, um, Jesus doesn't condemn uh, same-sex relationships. Uh, Jesus doesn't even reference that uh, in his ministry. Uh, so Genesis 1 for me, for a lot of people, that's like a big, big hinging point. It really hasn't been for me. Now, let me say this. 
since it hasn't been a hinging point for me, I haven't done um, like I haven't done probably the best justice in defending the reason it hasn't been a hinging point for me in the sense that there's a lot of books that go really in depth on creation uh, in a lot more depth than I just went uh, that would talk about Genesis one uh, and, and probably speak to someone who maybe Genesis one is the linchpin for you. And, uh, I would say starting with God and the gay Christian would be a great place to hear more on, uh, the creation, uh, narrative. I would say one of the stories though in Genesis was kind of a linchpin for me. Uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I, I grew up with that story and I grew up with the idea of, Sodomite uh, being something uh, that referenced someone who was gay. Um, and I grew up, I guess, with that story predominantly being about God's judgment toward, uh, at the time, homosexuals is what I would have heard probably from, from the pulpit or from my faith community that um, this story references God's judgment toward that particular community. Well, as I've come to read Sodom and Gomorrah and that story through the lens of what's happening historically, one thing you have to understand about the ancient world is that hospitality is really important. Um, when you are traveling from city to city in the desert, uh, being able to enter into a city and um, lodge for the evening or get water or get supplies uh, was was something that was kind of like an assumption that every city would would allow you in or or to a certain extent at least that 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 hospitality was a matter of life and death might be the way of saying it and and one story to think of that expresses this is when uh, two disciples are sent ahead of Jesus into Samaria to find a place to stay and then they're not invited into that village and and their their response as followers of Jesus so like peaceful Jesus who's been teaching them um, uh, to love one another, to love the Samaritan, been championing Samaritans, been telling them all about how God's love is for everyone, even the Gentile. This is who they've been following, but they are so conditioned to respond in a adverse way toward people who would lack hospitality that they actually say, we should call down fire from heaven. And that's actually a reference in a lot of ways to Sodom and Gomorrah, that these people have um, lacked hospitality for us, denied us to stay here, to you know, uh, get more supplies, to maybe uh, be fed and, and, and get water. Because again, we're talking about a matter of life and death in the desert, it very well could be. And so, so the disciples say, let's, let's call down fire. That would have been an acceptable response in their culture and in their time. Now, not necessarily that Jesus accepted that response because he doesn't and they don't do that, but it would have been the general response that people would have had in that moment, not just for Samaria, but for anyone who would deny someone the opportunity to, uh, to seek a, a place to stay or, or to, to re-up on their water and to, to, to ensure that these uh, life-giving realities existed. So as we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what becomes clear is that um, gluttony is a huge part of their story and not gluttony in um, necessarily uh, being obese, but 
or, or even food, but gluttony meaning the sin of excess. They have excess resources that they want to protect. And so they, they, they begin to deny people access um, to their city uh, because they don't want word to get out that they have all these excess resources because then someone may come and, uh, and take them or, or take over the cities. And so they begin to start denying people access. And so much of what's at the heart of what's happening in this story for an ancient reader would be symbols of their actions in denying people access. And so they, uh, as the story goes, an angel appears and, and, uh, and is being housed at Lot's house. They ask to come to, uh, the, the, the city, uh, a group of people in the city, uh, want to come and in essence, uh, gang rape, uh, this, this, angel um, because not because they're gay necessarily okay and I think that's really important but because they want to send a message uh, don't come here ever again um, we want the reputation as if you are a visitor joining us um, that 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 you're not welcome um, and so this is the way in which they acted. And so for so many of us, that passage has emphasized uh, the sexuality happening there, not the abuse. This is not a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship. This is um, uh, rape, almost militarized rape, rape that's supposed to be sending a message to the individual, but also to the broader community don't mess with us. We have our stuff. We want to keep our stuff and we don't want to be open to others. And so ultimately what happens in this story is less a judgment about sexuality and more a judgment about hospitality. And even when Jesus references back to the story of Sodom, it, it's, it, it's about uh, hospitality. And as you look at the scriptures as a whole, hospitality is a huge value. It's a value of Jesus. It's a value of the disciples. It's a value of the church, the early church, but it's even a value far before that. And so you can see how that story doesn't relate in the way maybe some of us were handed its relationship to same-sex um, relationships. And so that's another one. Uh, you get to Leviticus and, uh, you know, uh, many of us were handed all kinds of things in Leviticus, uh, whatever that might be. Um, I would simply say uh, Leviticus, I think 1822 and uh, 2013 are the prominent passages. Uh, those two passages in Leviticus, and I think there's also one in Deuteronomy, um, are speaking to a particular code put in place at that time. Uh, now, those, those can be very concerning. Uh, Leviticus can have some actually pretty inspiring things in it, especially um, when I talk to my friend uh, who you know, has been on the podcast, uh, uh, Nathan McConkie. When I talk to him, he tells me you know, Leviticus is one of the first, you know, in a lot of ways, like health codes that, that would have informed the people of, of how to, to stay most healthy in this particular environment. So much of what is determined in here we know scientifically has huge benefits. And so you can look at all different kinds of things within the Levitical code that, that might give you an advantage in that particular society and culture, um, uh, above the other tribes, if you were to follow it from a, from a health standpoint. 
Um, so there are benefits in Leviticus in that way. There are things as we read through Leviticus. Leviticus is certainly the word of God uh, for this particular time and for this particular place. But ultimately, uh, the way I read scripture, uh, and I would even say the way I've read scripture, scripture for the last 10 years, probably even before this became a, a subject of importance, is that I want to read scripture through the lens of Jesus. Uh, I, I want to be fully aware of the revelation of Jesus as I read scripture. And so one of the things I talk about when I talk about that, which I'm sharing all this to then come back to Leviticus and share a little more about that, but to give you more of a meta view of how I read scripture, and this, again, this isn't how you have to read scripture, but this helps me uh, differentiate why Leviticus isn't really a, a, a passage of scripture that's going to hinge my theological belief on uh, much of anything if it isn't also found outside of Leviticus in some very concrete ways. Um, I see the Bible as progressively revealing who God is. We see God fully in the garden, and then ultimately we become unable to see God after the garden, at least unable to see God in, in his full sense um, because our brokenness is impeding much of that. Our our sin is is creating a a gap between us and God. This doesn't mean God isn't loving us the same. This doesn't mean God isn't active in our lives uh, in, in, in meaningful ways through that time period. Uh, it's just simply to say that in a lot of ways we were unable to see God and all the things we had attached to the idea of God just get more and more and more messy uh, through the Old Testament. And I think that's much of what the Old Testament is doing is revealing humanity's um, distance from God and even growing distance from God. Like you look at the, I, I, one of, one of the things I think about when I think about, uh, the time of the Kings within Israel is that, uh, they want to have a King so they can be like all the other tribes. They want to have a King so they can be like all the other tribes around them. And God's like, no, you can look to me as your King. But eventually God says, go ahead, get a King. It's not going to be good for you. It's not going to give you what you want, but go ahead and get a king. And even like the best king they could find, like King David, was a man with so much brokenness and moral failing in his story. So what we see is God trying to use the cultural realities of what's happening to draw people toward himself. And in doing that, God's opening himself to being misunderstood. Uh, and I would say he is misunderstood throughout the Old Testament by the individuals that are following him even. Uh, and I would even say to some extent, you and I have misunderstood God while we followed him probably. If you look back on your story, maybe there's a theology you held or a belief you held about God that now you're like, I don't know that that's how God does that anymore. I don't know that that's how God was even interacting with me at that point, but I thought it was. And so for many of us, we're growing in our understanding of God. And, and quite honestly, once we feel like we do understand God in any way of, fullness, right? Uh, maybe we've cheapened uh, who God is at that point, because I don't know that we can fully know God. We can certainly grasp him in some ways, but, but to fully know God, yeah, I don't think, I don't know that that's possible on this side of eternity. But what I do think happens is God says, uh, for my people to fully know me, for humanity to fully know me, uh, I need to send them uh, someone that bears their image. Uh, and so we see Jesus come uh, because we can see God differently in that image than we've seen God up to this point. Uh, a God who, who um, lives in temples. Uh, and so, so, so now we see a God that is in flesh among us and ultimately a God who, who loves, heals, and even sacrifices 
a God who calls uh, the people that no one in culture would say could follow God, um, but actually aligns uh, himself as a friend of sinners. So, so we see this, and this is radical. This is God entering the story in a whole new way than ever before. And so it reinterprets the story up to this point. What I would call it is this is a plot twist moment. Uh, This is a moment where everything in the narrative changes. God sends Jesus, and Jesus is the exact representation of who God is to man. That's actually Hebrews 1.3. Jesus being the exact representation is actually revealing that maybe God hasn't been accurately represented previous. One way of thinking of this is if you've ever watched the movie The Sixth Sense, one of my favorite movies. Um, if you've watched that movie, you kind of get to the end of the movie and you realize you're like, he's been dead the whole time? Hold on. And by the way, spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense. <laughs> um, maybe another reference might be like Star Wars where he's like, Luke, I'm your father. And you're like, what? Hold on, how did that happen? Uh, unless that one was spoiled for you because you maybe knew that happened before you saw it the first time. But I got to believe the first time you saw that, that was shocking to you. It was this plot twist moment. And you could go on and on with all the different movies that have plot twists in them. But Ultimately, when you come to the end of Sixth Sense and you realize that the first thing your mind does is goes back to these scenes and reinterprets them. Doesn't mean the scenes didn't happen. Doesn't mean the scenes aren't real. But it does mean that your understanding of what was happening in that scene has to now change. If we read Leviticus as if it's... It's the same as the words of Jesus, then we're not doing the active work to say there's a plot twist that has happened. There is a new direction that's been set. Even Paul says, we're not under the law. We're under grace. There's there's a new direction now. And so for us to look and, and hinge much of any of our theology on the book of Leviticus would be to deny the plot twist that exists. And I would even say that for, for much of the Old Testament, we have to be cautious how we integrate um, that collection of uh, stories, narratives, poems, all of this, how we do that and interact in, um, in, integrate that into our uh, theology because Jesus should be the center of our theology. Jesus is the plot twist and that plot twist informs our faith and informs mostly our view of God because again, Jesus is the exact representation of God to man. I think even the scripture says beyond that, the full radiance of his glory. And so if we want to see the full radiance of God's glory, we should be looking to Jesus, certainly not to Leviticus. But for those of you who Leviticus is a big deal or that that is a passage that you've been handed, a way you've been conditioned, a way you've come to know and understand this particular topic we're talking about today, I would simply say, If you feel Leviticus and the weight of the Leviticus passages is something to consider or something to to lean on strongly, I would say if you go to Leviticus 20.13, it says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. In the other passage in 18, it says abomination, I believe. And then the next 
part of verse 13 is interesting. They must be. So this isn't like a suggestion. Discern and determine whether it's right for your cultural context, right? They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own hands. Again, I'm not arguing that Leviticus is good or helpful. If that, that, that might be a passage that you've never heard before. And right now you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was in the Bible, but it's there. What I would simply say is if you're allowing Leviticus to inform your theological belief about same-sex relationships, you can't deny the weight of the outcome of what those beliefs should be as well. And the outcome should be capital punishment. Um, now, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just advocating for consistency. If we're going to lean on this scripture in any way, shape, or form, if we're even going to quote this scripture, we also have to quote the outcome. And uh, I don't think I see that outcome in Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't think I see that at all in Jesus. Um, the same God who, <laughs> who hanging on a cross <laughs> says, um, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I just can't see God fully revealed in that moment advocating for capital punishment, quite honestly, of any kind, but certainly in this particular place. So to kind of summarize the Old Testament for, for myself, at least personally, and, and how I've gotten here, uh, nothing in the Old Testament gives me hesitation toward side A. When we get to the New Testament, um, there's two passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I believe, and 1 Timothy uh, 1, 9 through 10. And uh, uh, the, the word that's used there that's predominantly translated for most of us in our translations today uh, as homosexual uh, is actually a word called arsenokoitai. And arsenokoitai is a very debated word because it wasn't really a word that existed in its culture and time and place. We don't really have cross references for what that word is. You could almost say it this way. It seems as if Paul is kind of inventing or creating a word in some ways. Um, there's a lot of conversation that we should have around 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. When I say that, I say uh, the jury seems to be out on what's being said in those two passages. And I could go more into in depth on that, but I, I don't I don't want to for the sake of this podcast right now. Um, I would just encourage you to dive into, again, I'll, I'll go back to referencing um, God in the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. There's also a great book um, by uh, Kathy Baldock, uh, Walking, uh, the Bridgeless Canyon. That's a that's a great book that dives in a little more into some of the 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 ways in which this word and uh, some of just our language around uh, the conversation of of LGBT, but ultimately even how the word homosexual is imported into the scriptures. Which, by the way, it, that is a relatively new thing. It wasn't until the 1940s, and prior to that, the word sodomite was used, and sodomite. Uh, doesn't mean what it means for at that time that it was being used didn't really mean what it means for many of us today the word sodomite was largely connected 
to um, any sex that was non-procreative or not for procreative uh, reasons. Um, uh, if you, so you could be in a heterosexual relationship and be a sodomite in that moment. And so, um, and it also had all kinds of things to do with um, uh, the, just the ancient understanding of who um, the penetrator was and who was being penetrated and these roles that, were, that existed within the ancient world that really um, were with us throughout most of our history uh, from the early church even uh, to, to, to very recently. And so as we think about that, I think it's really important um, to consider resources of history, but to look at this word and say, okay, this word has been translated differently throughout history. Uh, this word has not always been translated with the word that I see it as today with the context through which I see it as today. And so you cannot deny the debate that exists there, that there have been various translations at various times throughout history trying to understand and know what this word means. So this word could very well mean fornicator, someone who is actively hooking up with multiple people, you might say. Okay, and there's a variety of things. I'm just picking one that it could mean. But ultimately, what I guess I'm trying to say is, if Paul's advocating against that, you and I may very well advocate against that as well. Like, I actually would advocate against um, someone just hooking up with random people. The problem is I don't know what Paul's saying there. And as I've dove into those two particular passages, a variety of resources on those two particular passages, I don't see clear evidence that tells me I have to be side B because of these two passages. There's, and, and, and I would say actually early on, um, when I started this study, we're talking like probably seven, eight, nine years ago when I really started getting into the biblical theological reality of this, these two passages were big question marks for me uh, right away. I've stayed engaged and continued to learn more about those passages, but ultimately these were not passages that provided me much, if any, reasoning to, 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 to not be side A. There's a reference in Jude chapter one, verse seven, about strange flesh. And um, Jude is not referencing loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. Um, it's referencing back to coercive, abusive um, relationships that are rooted in, in rape and power over. And so uh, nothing in Jude here is giving me hesitation, just like uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story would not give me hesitation do want to get to the passage that has provided me with the most hesitation. The passage that really for the last seven years ha has been the passage that for the most part uh, has kept me from uh, has kept me from crossing the line, if you will, to side A. Uh, Romans 1, um, 26 through 27. Um, it's definitely been the biggest roadblock for me. And I, and I say that to just simply say uh, the arguments around this passage have not been as clear for me. Uh, and those arguments uh, are certainly arguments that I understand and know and uh, have, have continued to hear through the years. But this has definitely been the biggest hurdle, if you will, um, for me to um, get over in all of my thinkings about this particular theological conversation. Uh, 
I'll just read for you quickly Romans 1, 26 through 27, and I'm reading from the NIV translation. It reads, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their, for their perversion. So, um, I think what I would say is if you're in the place that I was in where, um, you're like, man, Justin, I think I agree with you on all of the passages, um, leading up to this one in Romans. Um, I would say, uh, keep studying. You're in a great place. Keep loving people, lean on Jesus, lean on the example of Jesus, lean on the fruits of the spirit, lean on the passages that say above all we love. And if you are in a place where you're between side A and side B and you're just simply saying, I don't know, that's an okay place to be. I lived there for a long time. I, I think I've been saying, I don't know when people have asked me if this is a sin for eight years, maybe even more than that. Um, because what I did know is I knew uh, I want to be faithful to scripture in this process. I don't want to just simply say, I believe something, but I haven't considered what scripture says about it. Uh, I have a very high view of scripture. Um, and, and for me, I, I want to keep that intact, even as I love people even as I create space for people, even as I include all kinds of people, people who are active in sin. And I'm not even saying that that pertains to this conversation. For example, someone who's destroying their life through drug abuse. Um, I would call that sinful, but I would also say, I understand that addiction is a disease and empathy is the way in which I want to enter into relationship with that person, not judgment. And so, um, as I read the scriptures, I ultimately want to place love above everything because that's what Jesus did. And that's what even uh, multiple New Testament writers are, are telling us to do, that love comes first. Love is the greatest. Uh, we're, we're, we're given images of this over and over again. I think where the rubber meets the road is then some people say, well, what's loving? To, to bless something that's sinful? To say it's okay to do something that's sinful? And, and I understand that argument. That's the, again, I'm very familiar with that argument. Um, but as I came to Romans and continued to kind of dive into it, some of the questions that we're asking now, I think, I think it's important to say this. We have volumes and volumes of um, references, uh, commentaries, historical realities, church fathers, um, volumes and volumes on so much of the scriptures. Many people have said what they think about all of our scriptures, but also many people have said what they think on these particular scriptures we've talked about today, but they haven't had the pressure of culture saying, but what about loving monogamous same-sex relationships? So one of the things I want to say first is from what we know of culture, it's very unlikely, I would even say imp impossible, that Paul here is referencing loving monogamous same-sex relationships. And I want to use that distinctive because those type of relationships did not exist in Paul's day. And so he wouldn't have had a grid for even answering that question. Now, that doesn't mean what he's saying here doesn't apply to that group. But what I would say is it's not a specific application. Uh, the application to that group is 
maybe something that we can imply and we might be implying right if we make that implication, but we might also be implying wrong. And that would be the way I would kind of frame the conversation of what's happening in this passage. There's something very popular that's happening in Rome at this time. And uh, it's, it's intriguing to me that this, this letter that's written to Rome um, was not originally broken to chapters, but this is very early on in the letter. It's chapter one, um, and it would be still in somewhat of like kind of the introductory point or at least the, the beginning of the letter. Um, and it is addressed to Rome, and it immediately goes right into this topic of, um, you could call it sexual perversion, if you will, or, or what, however you want to frame that. Um, there's a question of if Paul is referencing the Roman uh, you know, reality of pederasty. Pederasty being a, a power dynamic that existed in Rome where older men would rape younger boys. We're talking boys under the age of consent in our reality today, even as young as maybe 10, 11, 12, you know, into their teens. Uh, but older men raping younger boys is a system of power and coercion and almost, um, it was a societal reality. Um, these would be men who were um, in heterosexual relationships, maybe married, uh, but, but ultimately there was a power dynamic and structure of what's called pederasty. You can simply go and um, Wikipedia pederasty. We have all kinds of historical evidence and realities that this was something that existed in Rome. Um, as I've reflected on this passage more and more and more, I think Paul is addressing some perversions and realities that, exist, that existed in Rome that are not what we're working through today. They were what Rome was working through in some very unjust, abusive, uh, it's rape is what we're talking about. Um, and Paul thinks it's so important to reference this right out of the gate in his letter, that this is wrong. This should stop. And if anyone in the church is participating in this as they're part of this culture, uh, stop. This isn't good. This is destructive. This is evil. I would assume that if you're listening to this, most of us would say um, older men raping younger boys should stop. It's not good. It might make the introduction of a letter to a group of people who are placed in that culture asking for guidance of how to interact with their culture, how to, to, to love people, and how to do justice in that space. So while this was the biggest roadblock for me, because um, even as I had that argument, by the way, that's not a new argument I've had. That's something even I would say five, six years ago, I was fully aware of that particular argument. It was still something that I was like, ah, but I still don't know. Like, what if Paul is referencing, um, what, if, what, what if what Paul is referencing is um, related to our conversations and the realities of what's happening today. And I've had to sit with that um, and ultimately just say, I don't know. And I don't know hasn't been super easy for some of the LGBT people I know to hear me say. Um, and I don't know hasn't been super easy for some of my uh, side B friends to hear me say. I'm connected to a variety of 
of faith uh, expressions and denominations and friends who went to liberty and friends who are uh, so liberal that when they hear the word liberty, (laughs) they cringe. I'm connected to a broad spectrum, you could say. And um, I felt pressure from both sides to choose that side. But ultimately, I've wanted to journey through this with a desire to hear people's stories. Um, And the more and more I realize also that Jesus didn't discuss this, the more and more I just came to consider a few things. First, I love the Wesleyan quadrilateral. If you don't know what that is, think of, you know, four different quadrants and uh, tradition, scripture, reason, and experience being in all of them. And what Wesley kind of says is like, for us to understand God, uh, we can't deny tradition, reason, and experience in our, in, in how we bring that to scripture. And that ultimately scripture is the highest. And I already said that I have a very high view of scripture, but tradition should be considered, reason should be considered, and experience should be considered. And I would say what's really happened over the last five years is that I've allowed reason and experience to really form my approach to that text um, more and more. Uh, A text that once held me back from side A um, has now been something that in the light of of my experience with LGBT people who are faithfully following Jesus. um, I've just come to see that I don't think what Paul's referencing there is the individuals that I'm in relationship with. And I don't think he's saying that the individuals that I'm in relationship with that are following Jesus are in sinful relationships, those that are married and those that aren't married. Um, A way of thinking about this when we talk about church history too um, is on matters of slavery, for example, uh, you could say we had tradition and scripture on our side because um, there were people who were able to manipulate the scriptures to to be pro-slavery, um, to say things as if it was God's plan for there to be slaves. And um, we have all kinds, uh, I could go into that, all kinds of things on uh, statements that were made Um, about slavery uh, from the perspective of God's blessing being on slavery and that if we were to to not have slavery it would actually be uh, sinful to deny this because this is the way God planned it to be you could say Um, and so tradition uh, the tradition of of that and um, scripture and experience that we were in um uh, we're, we're telling us one thing. And then eventually uh, we started reasoning and saying, wow, well, if, if everyone's an image bearer of God, because the scriptures do tell us that, but if our reason set, then, then says, but these people aren't. And by the way, uh, if you live in America where I live, there was even like, <laughs> we decided someone could be not as human as us because of the color of their skin. Fascinating. Like, we, we, we tell ourselves these different things that help us get through uh, that are not very reasonable. They're not rooted in reason. And then eventually you come to the conclusion like, okay, hold on. That doesn't really pass the reason test. That doesn't really pass the logic test. But then also you're having experiences with people. You're like, I've actually got to know some slaves and, and they are just real people. Like 
whatever I've been taught or conditioned to think about this group, I, I don't, I think they should be free. I think what we've been working for here is a country that's rooted in freedom. And, and, uh, and, and I think I need to go back to the scriptures and maybe even my faith community and the tradition that I've been handed in and, and champion a different narrative. And this is where we get the abolitionists, the Christian abolitionists, like the Christian abolitionists aren't necessarily operating solely out of scripture. Yeah. Scripture is a huge driver, but they, they, they have to reinterpret the scripture um, provided their reason and their experience. And they even have to challenge their tradition. So when you think of the quadrilateral being four, like they only have two things on their side and they have to go back against tradition and against the way that uh, it, the commonly held way of scripture up to that point. The same thing happens for segregation. Uh, segregation, uh, even into like the the, the nineties, you have places arguing for segregation, um, very conservative Christian spaces arguing for segregation, but you ultimately have all kinds of different, um, faith leaders in the fifties and sixties and seventies, even arguing, um, for segregation as if it was God's plan for humanity. And so we had to come back to reason and experience and we had to challenge our tradition and even the faith leaders that were championing texts in a certain way that were championing these scriptures through a lens of being pro segregation we had to say that that just doesn't seem right that doesn't seem like jesus like when i think about the central message of love it just does not seem loving to say we can have equality, but we need to be segregated. Like it doesn't seem like we're doing the loving thing in that, in that moment, or that certainly doesn't seem like equality, but, um, so we challenged segregation and, and the church spoke out against it. Eventually for some, it took longer than others as things do. Um, then you get to women in ministry. And I mean, the church is still divided on whether or not women should be in leadership or to the extent that women should be in leadership. But um, as we looked at scripture and our particular Western tradition, um, theological tradition, uh, we had to allow the experience of being connected to women who are clearly called to lead as pastors and to reason we're all created in the image of God. God has used women throughout the scriptures. Why would God not use a woman today as a pastor? That does not make sense. And so we went back to some of these scriptures that are, that are authored by Paul and reconsidered our approach to that and said, you know what? Maybe what Paul said here is not addressing what we're talking about today of women being pastors but it might be addressing the cultural context in which Paul is placed and the fact that women in the first century weren't educated. And so no, they can't teach because they weren't ever even educated. Could be that. Could be that there's temple worship connected to some of these women who are coming into the church. And so as they bring their braided hair and their jewelry, uh, this is actually imagery connected to um, 
the, the idol worship that existed prior to coming into the faith community. And so Paul tells them to be quiet, not because all women everywhere should be quiet, but because these particular women needed a time to sit and listen. Again, remember, Paul is writing letters to particular communities, solving particular problems. You or I might have written the same letter. But that's not maybe what we're talking about today when we think about women being released to do ministry. And you think about divorce. I mean, there's some churches today that still <laughs> have uh, interesting ways that they handle divorce. I know someone personally who had to stand in front of their faith community and repent for getting a divorce. Um, and only the woman had to do that. Interesting how that worked out. Um, we have a tradition where we've, we've been very compassionless toward those people who are going through divorce. If we look back at church history, if we look back at our tradition, if we look back at the ways we read scripture and the truth is the divorce conversation is a difficult one because Jesus actually references this. And Jesus actually says, if you get divorced and then you get remarried, um, that, you know, this is, you're entering into an adulterous relationship then. Like, whoa, Jesus said this. And so what happened was we had experiences. Experiences with, you know, some of the estimates are that one in two marriages, even in faith communities, are going to end in divorce. And so these people getting divorced were our friends. We heard their stories. We heard the realities of their experience. For some of them, we heard how they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to make it work. Or they forgave and forgave and forgave and forgave, but infidelity continued. Or um, they grew apart over time because being in relationship with somebody is so difficult and it takes so much out of us. It's such a blessing and it's so beautiful, but it's also hard. Anybody who's married will tell you that. And so we grew in empathy and understanding for our friends who were going through divorce. And as we looked back at the scriptures of Jesus, even on this topic, it's not that we don't think what Jesus said is true. Like, yeah, Jesus, life is hard and being married is hard. And we might like getting divorced is not good, but we also see in Jesus Someone who steps in front of a woman who's about to be stoned for adultery and says, do you guys have sin? I mean, if you don't have any sin, you can throw a stone at her. And so we begin to consider like, hmm, would Jesus make this woman stand in front of her whole faith community and confess this? and then remove her from the worship team because of this reality or remove her membership or his membership even, um, it became clear that we were looking for laws that Jesus gave us instead of the principle of love. We were not leading with the principle of love in this area. And, and and this became a real raw reality in our faith communities because there was such a huge impact. It wasn't just five or 10% of our community. It was a significant portion.
portion of our community that was working through issues of divorce. And so now in many churches, you will see divorce care groups. That doesn't mean the church thinks divorce is a good idea or that it's not full of pain and sin and brokenness. Like, yeah, divorce is not good. I've, I've counseled many people through that process. It's heavy. It's hard. But we've led with compassion now. We've led with understanding now. We've led with empathy now. We, we've led with the higher calling in Scripture, which is the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We've, we, we've said, above all, our call is to love. And so we're going to lean into that when things get messy and difficult, not into a law. We don't lean into the law when, when things get messy and difficult. We lean into love because when things got messy and difficult for Jesus, he leaned into love. And we're called to emulate Jesus. We're literally called in the scriptures to be imitators of Christ. And so I take that experience and I say to myself, how might those experiences over our last 100, 200 years reinterpreting scripture impact the way I see LGBT inclusion? And it's been a process. It's been a long process for me. But ultimately, I do not believe there's anything inherently sinful about committed, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. I believe God can and does bless these relationships. I believe LGBT people can follow Jesus while in a same-sex relationship. I believe LGBT Christians should be fully included in the life of the church, volunteering and serving and being members, being on the board, being on the staff. If God has gifted them for ministry in the church, we should not be withholding that expression or that gift purely because they're in a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship or are pursuing one. I think of my friends. I have many people that are friends um, not just acquaintances anymore, but friends, people that call me pastor. I want love to be my compass on this. I want love to be what directs me on this for the sake of my friends. And for some of us, we might quote Corinthians and say, well, love is patient. So why don't you just be patient? And I would actually say, yes, love is patient. And I think I've argued for that in this podcast even, that, hey, if you have friends inside B and you're inside A, um, show patience and understanding. And if you have friends inside B, uh, that, or, or vice versa, then uh, show patience. Like we need to be more patient with each other. I actually believe that. Um, it's side A and side B can be a lot more patient with each other. There's no doubt. But love also protects. And one of the things I've realized over the last year is that my role as a pastor and as an influencer and as someone who has a platform, uh, as someone who's doing ministry and involved in people's lives and is a spiritual director of sorts for a community, my role is to protect in some ways. Um, even the scriptures would call my role a shepherding role. And shepherds protect. 
it's been my sense over the last year um, that without being side A, I'm doing a poor job of protecting. Now, that's not the only thing that's led me to cross this line. Um, I've certainly prayed so much over the last year, sought the Spirit so much over the last year on this particular subject. Jesus compels me toward this position. I feel centered on Jesus and the scriptures as I share this with you even now. Love, the love of Jesus, but even love beyond that, a love that in the scriptures we're called to above all love one another. Um, And that love is talking about to love one another like Christ loves, like a self-sacrificial love, like I'm willing to sacrifice myself if that's what it takes to love my neighbor, to love these, these individuals. And I would say that extends to anyone, but especially those at the margins. And some of those in our communities that are at the margins are part of the LGBTQIA community. I got into ministry to love people, like, and to do it well. And... Um, I want the legacy when people look back on me as a pastor to be one of love and care for people. And so when I think of a scripture that says above all love, I'm like, I feel really drawn to that. And I want to pull everything that's in there out of that. I want to dissect that passage. When it says above all, I used to have a professor in college at Liberty actually that said all means all and that's all all means. And and the idea there is like uh, all means everything. Like it doesn't mean some things. It means everything. Um, Above our doctrine, we're called to love. For some of us, we really need to hear that. Like, above our conditioning, we're called to love. For some of us, we really need to hear that. Above everything, we're called to love. And it's my feeling in being with, in relationship with, with many people in the LGBTQIA community that the best way I can express that love is by being on side A, by letting them know that their loving monogamous same-sex relationship is, is not sinful, and they're not excluded because of that. They're included, and that, and that God loves them deeply, and that this isn't hindering them in their ability to follow Jesus, and their faith community should not be treating them as a second-class citizen because of this reality, but they should be fully included. I feel compelled toward that because of the example of Jesus and the passages in the scripture that speak on love. And when I go to these other passages that give me hesitation, I place love above that. That doesn't mean I don't reason and think through those passages as I have a little bit briefly with you. Um, But ultimately, I want to lean on the example of Jesus. I want to love fully. And my desire is to express that in this way. I want to thank you for listening to me over this period of time. Uh, It's different when you don't have a guest. Uh, This is definitely a different Beyond Boundaries episode. 
I would ask that you pray for me. And, uh, just because this is uh, new territory for, for myself, um, pray for me because it could have implications on my licensing within the denomination that I'm a part of, um, likely will have implications on my licensing within the denomination I'm a part of. I'm aware of that. Um, but ultimately as we've gone through this month and even all the things leading up to this month, uh, I, I feel the spirit leading me this direction and I'm thankful for your support. Many of you have reached out and said that the podcasts and the stories that we've shared have been incredibly helpful for you or been things that have provided a new way of understanding uh, or opened you to uh, hearing someone else's experience, an experience you had not ever even considered before. And now you're considering how your theology uh, might impact their experience. And I think that's beautiful. I'm so excited that some of these stories have, have impacted you. And I just want to encourage you to keep seeking out stories that are going to challenge you, uh, certainly on this topic of LGBTQIA, but also on more. I do want to say I had one other interview that I hoped would come out in this month and it wasn't able to. So uh, we'll likely be um, pushing that into a future uh, month. Um, but the Beyond Boundaries podcast is going to go kind of back to its random nature of being about all different kinds of things. And so uh, next week, I think we will have a episode from Nathan McConkie on genetics. And so we talk about genetics next week and that'll be fun. Uh, he and I recorded that podcast a little while ago and we will bring that to you. And uh, if you don't remember Nathan McConkie, he was on the first episode where we talked about evolution together and many of you enjoyed that episode. And so uh, Nate will be back next week for that. And then we will have a variety. I think we have one coming up on the Enneagram. I sit down with my friend Annette and we talk about the Enneagram. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, we do that. Ultimately, I just want to thank you if you've made it this far, you've been listening to me rambling for, I don't know, probably something like a couple hours now, <laughs> but that's another episode down. And I just thank you for, um, for listening, for hearing. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, if you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, uh, questions, uh, probably the more expedient way of getting my attention is if you wanted to reach out on Instagram, I'm at Pastor Justin Douglas. Again, I want to encourage you to subscribe, rate, review, and share uh, this episode. It really does make a difference. Uh, may you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.